0: It's Jared. So, every time there's a major presidential election, like the one this November, there's a renewed conversation about how campaigns and elections are supposed to operate in and of themselves. And this year is no exception. With debates about mail-in voting and the very real possibility that Trump will not accept the results of this election, the conversation on this topic has only been furthered by COVID-19. However, one key piece of this debate that has taken center stage in the past decade is campaign finance. And while that word is kind of loaded and talked about in confusing acronyms and Supreme Court decisions, all of us interact with campaign finance every day. Whether you've ever donated to a political candidate, a political action committee, or PAC, or hate the idea of having money in politics altogether, the way that campaigns function is massively important to how American democracy works. The proliferation of special interests and campaigns is one of the few nonpartisan issues that most Americans want to see fixed. But as I said, it's very confusing most of the time. So we thought for today's episode, we'd record two really interesting acts that tackle campaign finance from all sides. In act one, I'm going to sit down with Laz Myman, who's the co-founder of How Is This Legal?, which is a social media effort to break down what campaign finance is and how it came to be this way in the past 50 years. And then, in Act 2, I'll sit down with the National Director of Wolfpack, Mike Mineta, to discuss possible solutions that combat corrupt money in politics and the way forward out of a broken election system. With the election right around the corner, I really feel like this episode is for everyone who cares even the slightest bit about the future of our country, not just in this election, but going forward. So stay tuned. Hey, Laz. Hey, Jared. How you doing? Good. How about yourself? Pretty good. Good, good. Thanks for coming on. I know we've been off for a while for some of our dedicated listeners, and I'm really excited for this episode for multiple reasons. But before we get into campaign finance and super PACs themselves, could you provide a little introduction about who you are and what is How is This Legal? Yeah, for
1: sure. Um, All right, so I'm Laz Meiman, and I am the co founder of How is This Legal which is a social media campaign targeted at spreading awareness about government corruption and campaign finance reform. So I started it with my friend Max, and we basically were both huge political nerds. We've both done Youth in Government, the Cal YMCA program. We've both held various government internships, and through our interactions with government, we learned that really campaign finance reform is arguably the biggest issue that we're facing as a nation right now. But a lot of people don't really understand how it works. So we decided to create a social media campaign that would break down complex ideas like donors, super PACs, and make it into something that could be easily understood and easily shared. So that's kind of what How Is this legal is. Awesome.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I would agree with you to an extent because Unless you're planning a bloody overthrow and revolution to work within the political system is really the only way to create widespread social change. That's at least how the American system is set up. But if the system is flawed in the first place, you can't really access any issue that goes beyond it. So Um, You mentioned super PACs, and I think this is a buzzword that even probably non-politicos are somewhat aware of because it's just thrown around. And if you imagine it in Bernie Sanders kind of accent, it's even more recognizable. But Could you give us a brief history
1: of where does a super PAC start and what is a super PAC? Super PACs are essentially just independent committees that spend a whole bunch of money on campaigns. And so the start of Super PACs in America can really be traced back to one big event, which is Citizens United versus FEC, uh, which was a Supreme Court case in 2010. And essentially, Citizens United, which was a conservative nonprofit group, wanted to promote a documentary attacking Hillary Clinton right before the presidential primaries, which technically violated FEC regulations. So the FEC told them they couldn't, and Citizens United then sued. And so the Supreme Court sided with Citizens United by a margin of five to four and essentially ruled that since because they were not associated with any particular campaign, they were allowed to avoid FEC regulations and essentially spend however much money they want. So because of Citizens United, now any group that declares itself independent from campaigns can basically do whatever they want and spend unlimited amounts of money. So that's where super PACs come in. So, super PACs are essentially these independent groups in theory that will raise a whole bunch of money from wealthy donors, from corporations, and also individual contributions, and then spend it on communications, advertising, various means by which they can help influence elections. And while they're technically independent, they're often really closely tied to campaigns. And many times they're even run by campaign affiliates who will leave the campaign payroll to go start a super PAC. So, yeah, I mean, that obviously yeah. sounds
0: shady. And I guess to use your own words, how is it even legal? Yeah. In the sense that you're basically having hard money, which is the term used for money directly spent by campaigns on advertising and whatnot, right. is capped due to a variety of measures, McCain-Feingold being one of them, also known as the BCRA. But that notwithstanding, there, it was intended that campaigns could not just spend unlimited money to influence people to great extents. But now, as you are pointing out, as long as it is not associated with the campaign and just a concerned individual, they can spend unlimited money because effectively in Citizens United they determined
1: that money was a form of expression, correct? Correct. And this stuff happened to an extent before Citizens United, too. It's called soft money. And so it would be independent organizations that would make you know ads and different things attacking candidates. But still, some of the FEC regulations applied to those political action committees. And so now with Citizens United, basically all all those regulations are lifted and soft money is just unlimited. You can spend however much money you want, as long as it's not part of a campaign. That that obviously sounds problematic, but I think if we
0: look at some examples, it might help here. So if you could provide kind of a a key case study, if you will, of why super PACs are really detrimental to the
1: American political system. So in 2018, there was a total of $1.6 billion spent by super PACs on House races, Senate races, all of the midterm races, right? And so in all of these, they'd be spending $15, 30000000 million on, say, one congressional race. And When you think about all of that money that's going into just campaigns, so much of that could be going to things that actually benefit the American people. And not only that, beyond just the unethical nature of spending that much money, the fact that the more money you have directly translates into how much influence you have is going to create a lot of problems for the American system, right? Because if you're a big corporation and you have a whole bunch of money that you can spend, you could could essentially drown out any kind of grassroots movement, or anybody that doesn't have the same amount of money that you have. And so essentially, the more money you have, the more more voice you have in politics. And that really undermines the basic principles of what democracy is about in America.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you hit it on the head here. And I think it's actually even more than that. Because yes, in the campaign, you can basically select whoever you want if you have enough money because that equals more ads, more literature that's getting sent. You know, there's a lot of different mediums uh, of which that money can influence political decision. But I think it goes beyond the campaign too, right? Definitely. I know the documentary Meet the Donors on HBO, a lot of these people don't actually care about the outcome. They just care that they have an aim with whoever wins, right? So yes. you, you have an, an unfair say in the campaign, but you also have an unfair say because you donate all this money to the winner. And you know, in higher stakes, that might mean a government appointment if you say for donating to president, but that could also mean that if you need a permit on a, in a local election, if you need some sort of building yeah. permit, that can get fast-tracked for you. I think you hit it right on the head here that it both affects the campaign and the position and the winner who holds that position.
1: Right. And when, when you also think about it too, when you're a legislator and you get elected to office, you want to get reelected. You know, so you're going to create legislation and you're going to promote legislation that's going to get big donors to give you money so you can win re-election. I mean, you look at the tax cuts from the Trump administration, if you look at who they benefited, and they're all really wealthy donors. And so not only is there an incentive for legislators to promote legislation that's going to benefit their donors, not the people, there's also a sense of return on investment on the part of the people who are donating the money. Because- if you are a corporation and you donate, let's say, $50 million to a presidential race and that presidency then promotes tax cuts, which save you $100 million in taxes, you still got away with $50 million. So there's a return on investment there. You know, you you still benefit.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think a yeah. lot of donors would admit that it is an investment, right? Yes, to an extent, there are some people who just like to play with politics, but no, these larger... Uh, forces that be are doing it for a very targeted reason, not just because it's fun and they get to toy with races. But moving on from this, so I think it's, most people would admit this is an issue, a large issue, but it's also, I would argue, a nonpartisan issue, right? Both parties benefit from this substantially. I mean, most people have either heard of George Soros on the left or the Koch brothers on the right. I mean, pick and choose, but everyone in politics is involved with this to some extent. So the question then becomes, what do we do from here? And I know in act two of the episode, we're going to talk to someone who's very involved on what to do from here. But in the short term and in the long term, Laz, what do you kind of see as steps that people can take to combat the power of super PACs?
1: Right. Well, I mean, you're absolutely right about the fact that both parties are benefiting from it. You know, it's a system that is forcing everyone who goes into politics to essentially become corrupt. And cater to big donors, because that's what you need to be able to win. So thinking about what we need to be able to overcome this, it has to be a movement that is independent of parties altogether. You know, it has to be something where people are standing up just for the rights of the people, not as Democrats, not as Republicans, just as American citizens. And so in the short term, there are obviously a few things that we can do, one of which is is, um, enact legislation that would increase public funding on elections, which means basically for every small donor, for every amount that a small donor donates, the government will match it with federal or state money. There are several cities that have enacted this to varying degrees of success, but there are plenty of studies that say it would work on a national level. Additionally, there's an act called the Disclose Act, which has been introduced mul- multiple times since 2010 in Congress. And essentially, the Disclose Act would put tighter requirements on super PACs that would make them, that would force them to release who's actually donating to the super PACs and who is really providing the money to win these elections. So, those are two really concrete short term solutions. But I think the biggest long term solution is an amendment to the Constitution of the United States. Mm. And it will be a constitutional amendment that would require all funding for elections to be public funding. It would eliminate private funding altogether and eliminate the need for super PACs, eliminate the need for outside money and return democracy to the hands of the people and to the hands of the voters. And I think that is an extremely large goal to have. It's not easy to get an amendment to the constitution, but I think really if the American people start organizing and realizing that their government isn't working for them, corporations and special interests don't really stand a chance. The American people are powerful. We work harder. We work longer. We spend more of our income on taxes than any corporation and any billionaire. We hold more of a stake in government than they do. And so I think it's about time the American people stood up together, regardless of party, regardless of race, regardless of any factors, and say, we want our voice back. And we want to have our voices be just as powerful as special interests, as corporations, and as billionaires. So I know it sounds idealistic, but I think it's possible. And I think if we start now and we start building up support, we can really have a movement that brings real change and real campaign finance reform in the future.
0: Yeah, I love the, the goal. The only thing I kind of see that might be a bit of a pushback is that if you look at the amount of money spent from everyone, super PACs, regular PACs, unions, you know, 501c4s, all different types of kind of expenditures. The number has jumped dramatically in the past 10, 20 years. Uh, Starting with the Obama, really, the 08 campaign saw more money in it than almost uh, the past like five combined. Don't quote me on that. That's not like a figure I know for sure. It just sounds right. Yeah, (laughs) something like that. The only pushback I see is that using tax money to fill that gap would be a lot of tax money going to something that doesn't inherently help people. That's the only like, kind of right. th- thing that holds me up, is that if we're going to end up spending billions on campaigns from the government, that probably should go into something like affordable housing or you know, pick your issue, opposed yeah. to a race itself. What are
1: your thoughts on that? Well, the only reason that our campaigns are so expensive right now is because there's almost like an arms race between the two parties as to who can fundraise more. Right. So as long as we have outside spending, they're going to keep essentially forcing each other to raise the stakes. Because like if the Democrats spend a billion dollars on a campaign, the Republicans are going to be like, oh, well, now we have to spend one point five billion dollars. And so if we eliminate that and we have publicly funded elections, you could restore limits on how much you spend. There's absolutely no reason that campaigns have to be this expensive in most other developed nations and most other nations in general there aren't campaigns that are this expensive. There's no reason why we should be spending all of this money on campaigns when it could be going back to the people, like you said. And so enacting publicly funded elections wouldn't mean spending billions of taxpayer dollars. It would mean spending thousands of taxpayer dollars, much less. It would be a very small percentage of the budget to save a whole bunch of money that can go to better things.
0: Yeah, I hope it would. Again, the only thing that kind of hangs me up here, and in general, I'm 100% on the same page as you, um, is that we have tried publicly funded presidential elections. There is a presidential public fund, but it's capped, I don't know the exact figure, but it's capped within the 100 million range, I'm pretty sure. And basically what people decided was, you know, if we can just get more money privately, let's ditch the public option and just go private. And I guess maybe if the public option becomes the only one and you just ban private donors, then that's what people are going to have to live with. Yeah. But I'm just like a little dubious about the success of it. I feel like it could work. I just feel like it would almost be impossible because of the nature of campaign finance reform to get to that point. But in general, I hope it gets to there.
1: Yeah. I mean, so do I. I mean, realistically, I don't know if this can happen. You know, like I'm not saying that this is the only route by which we can make our politics better. You know? That's the ideal state. But there are so many there are so many smaller things that we can work towards to really, you know, build a base and build a foundation. You know, but it's like the idea of like, you know, UBI or universal healthcare. Those are mm-hmm. goals. You know, we can always strive to get there. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. Laz, thank
0: you so much for coming on. I think yeah, this absolutely. was really helpful and an issue that unfortunately continues to try to be tackled and kind of fails in one way or another. But I hope, uh, I hope we do see some real change shortly. I hope so too. Anyway, thanks I, again, I'm Laz. hopeful
1: for the American people. I, I think <laughs> so, am
0: I. so am I, so am I. Thanks again, Laz. All right, thank you. Once again, I'd like to extend a big thank you for Laz Maiman to coming on to explain the very fundamentals of campaign finance reform. If you like what you heard, I would recommend following the Instagram account at howisthislegal uh, to see more of what Laz and his co-founder Max Edelstein are working on. Now for act two, where I sit down with Mike Mineta, the head of Wolfpack, enjoy. Welcome back, everyone. We're so glad you're here for the second act of our campaign finance reform episode. I'm now joined by Mike Mineta, who is the director of Wolfpack, and I won't describe too much what that is. I'll leave that up to him. But we're so glad that you're on. Welcome to Contested, Mike. Thanks, Jared. Glad Um, to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So if you could just, for our listeners, provide a little brief introduction on who you are and your kind of background in campaign finance reform and government corruption, as well as what is Wolfpack and their kind of mission statement? Sure.
1: Yeah,
2: happy to do that. I am now the national director of Wolfpack. I came into politics probably at the same way a lot of people listening to your podcast did, I would imagine, which is just starting to realize how bad things are getting you know, with <laughs> our government. And I don't mean who's necessarily in office at the moment, you know, I, or, or even which political party is in power. You know, for me, I, I've been paying attention now, I would say, I don't know, 15 years or something like that. I spent a lot of my, my time growing up not paying attention to politics, not playing sports and mm-hmm. just having fun, going to concerts and, and doing things that I enjoy. Yeah, it was just for me, it was, it was just kind of, it's been an evolution, I guess, is the best way to describe it, as far as how I got, got involved. And when I heard the plan for, for Wolfpack, it just made sense to me instantly. It was, I don't know if you're familiar with the Young Turks or Jake Huger, the, the host of the Young Turks is yes. also the founder of Wolfpack. So he, he founded it in 2011. Well, Wolfpack is essentially led by the volunteers and the people who have put the most into the organization, which I think is pretty rare in the movement. Quite a few things I, I can say that I, that I really love about being with Wolfpack. But just going back to how I first you know, learned about it and came to be part of it it was uh, the very first day that it was announced. I remember watching the YouTube video of him explaining what what the plan was, which is essentially to get an amendment to the US constitution to fix a broken campaign finance system. Mm. But instead of going the typical way through Congress, it goes through the state governments, which I'll, I'll explain that in more detail in a minute.
0: Yeah, I think we'll just go probably straight down the line. But I think there was a few kind of valuable nuggets of information there. The first is that like, as you mentioned, grassroots organizing is tough and it always starts out small and you feel like, just kind of a few inspired visionaries and then from there you're like okay but i have to give as you said 50,000 volunteers is great i would say i don't know entirely when wolfpack started i think you mentioned it was 2011 or so but that's yeah i think that's really inspiring for a lot of people and then the more important point there was i think you're right i think everyone regardless of where you are can see that politics is not functioning as normal or at least as not as designed i think that's as much whether you read federalist papers or kind of early founding work you can see that this is not probably the actualized goal of some of the founders. So I I really commend that I think Wolfpack is working to just try to get back to what was promised opposed to anything radically new or different. And how you do that, I think, as you mentioned, was really interesting. So I think we can hop in there. The ultimate goal, as you mentioned, is to get a constitutional amendment, but not through the two-thirds, two-thirds House and Senate way, but instead through The state. So, could you describe a little bit about what the free and fair elections resolution is and the Article Five process?
2: Sure. And I like how you phrase that too. By the way, you know what we were promised, right? As as a country, as a government, what we all grew up visualizing, right? What our Mm -hmm. what this country was supposed to be according to our Constitution. And you know, at its core, what's being threatened right now is maybe the most American principle, right? Our constitutional right to self government is is being distorted because of this massive influence that special interest third-party groups have over our elected officials in Washington, D.C. So, you know, for us, for our perspective here at Wolfpack, we believe that this problem of corruption, and when I say corruption, specifically we're talking about how much we've allowed these special interests to contribute and just be part of our politics, right? It's a bunch of Supreme Court cases. People look at Citizens United, but it's, it's a long line of them. Mm-hmm. Essentially, just allowing more and more influence from from special interest. And it's distorting the people's voice in government, essentially. So we feel that this has become so systemic that only a constitutional amendment can solve it. Because only an amendment can go above Congress and go above the Supreme Court to be the new law of the land. Mm -hmm. The Constitution is still the supreme law of the United States. And what we need is an amendment that essentially fixes our broken campaign finance system and gives us an election, you know, an election process that we can be proud of, and ultimately a government that we can be proud of. So state legislation is great, and there are some groups, you know, working on that, like Represent Us is one. But you know, we believe that an amendment is what we need for the long run, and they complement each other, right? So it's fine, you know, to be focusing on state legislation. But if we get, you know, a certain amount of state-level legislation that, that um, has the same goal, essentially, which is to give, give us a government that represents us, the, we the people, it's not going to be protected for the long run without an amendment, right? And, mm-hmm. and vice versa. An amendment is not going to fix all of our problems. So you really do need to be doing multiple things at once. Our plan here at Wolfpack is our role in a larger movement. So, but we're taking on the, a big role. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we're taking on the big fight how do you get an amendment to the U.S. Constitution, right, you know, if that's that's our solution here? And according to Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution, there are only two ways to propose amendments. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two-thirds of Congress can propose an amendment, meaning, well, anybody in Congress can propose an amendment themselves, right, any individual. But for it to actually come out of Congress and have a chance to be part of the Constitution, two-thirds of each chamber, so two-thirds of the Senate and two-thirds of the House, we'd need to vote yes, you know, approve that amendment. And then it would go out to the states and three quarters of the states would have to approve that amendment before it actually became part of the U.S. Constitution. Now that's, that's one way to do it. The other way, as written in article five, is that the states can apply for a convention to be able to propose an amendment. So two thirds of the states, right now that would be 34 states, can apply for a convention, if we get to 34, Congress is constitutionally obligated to allow the states to come together and have a convention to be able to discuss a certain topic, in our case, campaign finance reform, and then propose an amendment out to the states for ratification. That's it. Those are the only two options we have for proposing amendments. Either Congress writes it, sends it out to the states for ratification, or the states come together and write it and send it out to the states for ratification. And the most important part to remember about this process Is that the ratification safeguard is exactly the same for either one of those methods, Mm -hmm. right? So they each have that ratification safeguard, which is extremely high. 75% of our states have to agree on a proposed amendment before it becomes part of the Constitution.
0: Yeah. One, I, I definitely commend you for fighting the big fight. I think that's a great way of putting it because it's a lofty goal, to say the least. Especially, I think the route that you're taking, which I think does work perhaps in this instance, because again, it's not something so controversial or I don't like to say forward thinking, that's not a good word. But as I said earlier, it's kind of a restoration opposed to a brand new idea. Although, if you could kind of respond on a follow-up here, a lot of people have been concerned about the second way in general due to the runaway convention phenomenon, which I'm sure you're well aware of. How do you kind of ease state legislatures into saying this convention would simply be to restore elections and just do something simple opposed to kind of a whole rewriting of the Constitution?
2: Yes, great question. The first thing that I would say to anyone who has questions about the Article 5 convention route for proposing amendments is to just go and read Article 5. Uh, that's the starting point. Just read it for yourself. It's only a paragraph. So mm. when people talk about, and, and I also want to clarify one other thing. When you say, you know, a lot of people say that it could run away or it's, you know, the whole Constitution is up for grabs. That's actually... Not really true. If you Google Article 5 Convention, yes, you will definitely see opinion pieces that come up that sort of will give weight to that side of the argument. But if you're talking about serious studies that have looked into this process, there's actually no debate. And 100% of them have concluded that the states do have the power to call a convention limited to a single subject and that there are multiple ways to enforce those limitations. And that any, you know, notion of a quote unquote runaway convention is unfounded. So, you know, fear is a powerful thing. It's definitely one of the things <laughs> that we have to combat. But at the end of the day, the facts are on our side. Historical precedence is also on our side. The majority of U.S. constitutional amendments have included the states calling for a convention on specific topics. And then, you know, Congress ultimately capitulating. Right. And that actually goes back, believe it or not, all the way to the Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. Congress was not going to propose those 10 amendments. New York and Virginia called for a convention to propose them. And that might not seem like a lot of states, but back then that was 20% of the states needed to force a convention. And right now we're only at 15%. So it's happened multiple times throughout our history. This is a very effective way to hold Congress accountable. right? If you're not gonna propose an amendment on something that we deem extremely important, then we're going to get the amendment ourselves, right?
0: Yeah. One, I think that's a great response to some of those claims, because you will see a lot of people concerned about that. And as I said earlier, I think that the way of going about this for this specific issue could work. Not saying that this issue is better than others, you know, in any way, but if you were to take something like a Green New Deal or a much more polarizing subject, let's say, and try doing that through the convention of the states, I would be a bit more dubious. But something like this is really, I think, just a citizen-concerned issue across the board. I was talking with Laz in the first part of this episode that both parties and everyone is guilty of this and kind of hopping off of that. I think you had mentioned that you're- Yeah, can I just- Yeah, go go for it, go for it. Yeah,
2: before we move on to the next question, can I just add to that? Because I think that's a really important point. Sure. Yeah, our whole thing here is like campaign finance reform is the root cause of why we can't make progress on all the other issues that we care about, right? Mm -hmm. And there are people on the left and the right who have their own issues that they really care about And big companies from from both sides of the political spectrum, we're just not, we're never gonna be able to do it because we're giving away our hard-earned tax dollars to companies in some cases that don't even pay taxes, right? Some of them have a P.O. box in the Cayman Islands and we're giving them billions of our tax dollars. It's insane. And I would think that would be a reason for people who are worried about that to say, okay, you know, having our government responsive to Wall Street and not Main Street is not helping my cause. And the thing you know that we talk about a lot here at Wolfpack is that it is a bipartisan issue or mm-hmm. nonpartisan. And what that means is people on both sides of the political spectrum want this problem solved. It's up 96, 97% of the American population sees the corruption in DC as a serious issue and wants something done about it. That's an astronomically high number.
0: Yeah. Right? Especially in a polarized and, time like now.
2: <laughs> exactly. And but it's also bipartisan in that. Both parties in Congress are not solving this issue. So for us, that is even more of a reason to go through the state governments because state legislators are actually responsive to the people. They do take their phone calls. They'll meet with us. They'll hear us out. Five state governments have already passed a convention call specifically on the topic of campaign finance reform, while it's basically impossible to get a meeting with someone in Congress. If you reach out to them, you're just going to get a form letter back, right? Thank you so much for your support. We care so much about what you think.
0: Yeah, I think I agree with you almost wholesale there, which is that if the issue itself is in the functioning of the federal government, relying on the federal government to amend itself is foolish, to say the least. I think it was Karch, the political scientist, who said that state legislatures are the laboratories of democracy. And I think this is kind of a key issue that would fit into that mold. Going forward a little bit here. So we said that there's already five states who have passed a resolution So for people who are in agreement that there needs to be serious change and that a constitutional amendment is the best way to do that, what are some things that they can do and that Wolfpack is doing to kind of further that goal?
2: Sure. And I just want to double down on the idea that if you join Wolfpack and you're helping us pass these resolutions that we are in each state, you are actually contributing to Congress ultimately proposing amendment as well. So whether you personally believe that Congress can write a better amendment on this issue or the states, getting them to apply for a convention on this topic is still the most effective way to get them to do that because there is accountability, right? If they don't mm-hmm. act, the states are going to take action and get this done themselves. That's the, the main thing I would say. But beyond our legislation, one of the cool things that I've seen just throughout my years here at Wolfpack is how people transform. And once they become a volunteer, a lot of us, like myself included, didn't even know that you could go and talk to state legislators, you know, set up a meeting, like you said, like, yes, they will, they'll make it a priority, you might have to push a little bit, but you'll get a meeting if you're persistent. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that you could go and and testify at committee hearings. I mean, yes, we will definitely teach you more about our legislation, you know, what it entails, you know, how to go to the state house, and, you know, testify at a committee hearing. But beyond that, you will learn how to be an active citizen. So it's empowering. I mean that's that's step one. I mean just get involved, get to know your state legislators. That will pay off in many ways. You know, again, besides just helping us pass our legislation, you know, you'll feel more empowered to go and talk about other issues that might, you know, be bothering you in your local community.
0: Yeah. I mean, I always advocate this and this is in part why I created contested. Is that there's so many ways to get involved in the political process, and I think joining really any PAC, I think Wolf PAC as you described, seems like an amazing amazing place to start. But really any issue that you care about, you can learn so much from going on a lobbying trip, calling representatives, signing petitions, working on a campaign, working for an assembly member or senator or representative. Because that is a launching point to do a whole lot more and a whole lot better, kind of good. So I really admire that I think organizations like Wolfpack are just willing to take you kind of afraid and lost and say, here, here's a script, start with this, and then you'll find your voice and By no time, you'll be running on your own. I think that's really admirable. And I think, especially for young people, which this pod's kind of designed for, those opportunities are key, I think, especially in an era when a lot more people care about a lot more things and are willing to work to fix things in kind of the most blunt way possible. But to wrap up here, I guess this is kind of a multifaceted question and you can take it wherever you want. But what is the main obstacles that Wolfpack is stuck on now? How are they going about those obstacles? And if there's any other events or information people should know about if they want to get involved with Wolfpack?
2: Sure. I would say there are two main obstacles. One is what we were just talking about with regards to the convention process itself. There is a decent amount of misinformation out there about, you know, this idea of a runaway convention. So mm. we are battling that. And that's one of the reasons why we try to do as many, you know, shows and, and podcasts and sort of just get our message out there to people, right? Because we do feel that the truth is on our side. We feel that history is on our side. And that when people learn the full picture, they want to be part of this plan. That has become more of an obstacle for us lately, but we are doing things to get around that. And the second obstacle, I would say, is just apathy. (laughs) Like People don't believe anymore that we can actually fix this. Over, was it 92% of Americans from this one particular poll said that they really want something done about the corruption happening in Washington, D.C., But 90% of those same people said that they didn't think anything would actually happen or there was no way to solve it. So that's a challenge, right? Because they've worn us down quite a bit. And we continually see people promising change or, you know, all these different things that we put our hope in and our elections get more expensive every year, right? And it gets worse and worse and worse and more dark money. And we're getting further and further away from, like we said at the beginning of the call, right, that promise of self-government, essentially. We're getting further and further away from it. So teaching people or just letting them know that there's a plan that has actually worked previously, that has historical precedence, that that is very strong, that is a way to hold Congress accountable to get this amendment, whether they do it or the states do it. From my experience, it actually makes people hopeful, just like I did, actually, on that first day. They say, wow, maybe we can do this. You know, maybe there is a way to, to actually solve this because this makes sense. This is a real strategy, a real plan to, to get this amendment. So, and the last thing I'll say is urgency, right? Like that's a big part of our bottom line at Wolfpack. And that is, we don't have time to waste. Like, yeah. you know, we talk about state legislators being responsive to the people and us being able to get meetings. That is true right now throughout the country, but it may not be 10, 15, 20 years from now. So this is it. Like this might be our last window to, you know, get in there and solve this thing before we lose it forever, because it is an experiment. And that's another thing we have to constantly remind people of, you know, it's not guaranteed. This whole idea of a representative government was always an experiment. And some people think we've lost it completely and there's no way to get it back already. We're not in that defeatist camp. (laughs) By the way, I am definitely not. I wouldn't be doing this if I was. Uh, And then there's another camp who feels that, yeah, it's pretty far gone. But if we take action, we can do it. And what I'll say to that, first of all, is, of course, we can do it. Like, just take a step back for a moment, right? And think about how many people there are in this country, right? Over 300 million people. And nine out of 10 of us want this problem solved. And we have the internet now like we have never had before. To connect and be able to fundraise and really grow our power right i mean give me a break of course you can do it like if, an, if even a small percentage of us believed we could do it we could get this done in probably a couple of years so i mean what wolfpack has done we've gotten five state governments to pass these applications asking for a convention to fix our broken campaign finance system we did most of that with two employees i mean now we have three, four people working on this full time with a couple contractors. I mean, we have essentially the same amount of employees that like a local 7-Eleven has. <laughs> and we've got five state governments to do this. So, you know, if we can build our power just a little bit more, you know, we're, we're going to get this done.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you touched on one of the most important things there, which is political efficacy right now is at an all time low. And you can find that, I mean, a whole bunch of places. But I feel it's almost a self-defeating cycle here, right? If you feel the system is broken, you don't feel like you can make change. And if you don't make change, the system continues to kind of crumble all around at a faster rate. So I think the point about urgency there resonates even stronger in the sense that if people don't have any belief now that things can be done, right? You said 90% now don't believe it can be done. If you wait another 20 years and things get worse and people feel even more hopeless, that number would only increase. uh, And the window will close. I mean, I don't don't like being a defeatist. I think a lot of things are possible. And as you said, but yeah, I mean, in general, I think there is a lot of possibility, a lot of potential, there's a high ceiling, but there's also a low floor. So I hope that people, you know, whether they hear even just this podcast and say, hey, like, there is a plan here, there is a route, this isn't something that's completely, you know, unable to be tackled. I think there is a little bit of optimism. Because when I was talking to Last in the first part of the episode, the fear that kind of Citizens United brought a lot among a, a lot of people is that, oh, it's done, like things are kaput, which is, is not the case. But I think, you know, if something else like that happens and crushes it even further, it becomes more defeatist over time, I guess is the short way of what yeah. I'm trying to say. If there's anything else that you want to add about events, ways to get involved, or kind of other states that you're focusing on now, so some listeners in those states can become even more involved, now is your time to mm-hmm. do so. Sure.
2: Yeah, well, it doesn't matter what state you're in. We can definitely use your help. So, even in the states where we've passed, we have active volunteers right now that are helping us pass other states or they're helping us with our communications team. Our communications team essentially they write social media, they write blogs and articles and create graphics for us. So, pretty much whatever skill set you have, you know, we'll we'll find a place for it here at Wolfpack. So, I wouldn't worry too much about that. And if we haven't passed you know, definitely join the state team, help them pass the legislation, get that going in your state. If it's not, you know, if there isn't an active team already there, you know, be the leader, I would say. And as far as like events and other things that are on the horizon, there's one coming up in September that I think is going to be a lot of fun. We usually have, we do, we have an annual workshop where we get together in person and we've had three of them so far. The first one was in Chicago, then it was Salt Lake City, Last year in Dallas, and this year, obviously, because of the pandemic, we can't get together in person. So, we're going to have the event virtually. And it's going to be the last weekend of September, September 25th, 26th, and 27th. It's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it'll be all kinds of just fun trainings, learn more about our plan. There's going to be some fun games as well. Yeah, that should be a lot of fun. So, that's the last weekend in September. It's our virtual uh, warrior workshop. And uh, you can just go to our website and just sign up. There's a sign up box that just says join us right on our homepage. And you don't even have to volunteer. If you just simply sign up, you'll have updates from our newsletter about that.
0: Awesome. Mike, thanks so much for coming on. This was really valuable and kind of insightful, I think, for a lot of people.
2: You bet. Yeah, it it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Contested. If you like what you heard, please visit our website at contestedpolitics.com and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. I'd once again like to extend a very big thank you to Laz Maiman and Mike Manetta for coming on and explaining an issue that is really, really complex but is so important for all of us to understand uh, as we interact with campaigns in this upcoming year. We'll be producing more episodes shortly, But until then, thanks to Adam for all the hard work behind the scenes and for all of you for helping us understand politics together.